This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Hello, I'm Wayne Scott and welcome to the latest episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Keeping Jaguar fans in touch wherever you are. This week we have an amazing interview with none other than Martin Brundle, plus tips on how to keep your Jaguar protected during lockdown hibernation and your chance to win an amazing prize. JBCpodcast.com Hi, yeah, I hope everything's good with you and that you're keeping safe and well wherever you are in the worldwide Jaguar community. I speak to you as May's upon us and weather's starting to feel a little bit more summery. And thanks to all of the wonderful podcast listeners for all your messages of support for the show over the last few weeks. Uh, you're sending in loads of them. It's fantastic to hear from you all, including Peter Dermody of the Jaguar Car Club of Victoria in Australia, who said it was great to hear Graham Searle speak so well of his many years as a great Jaguar man and, of course, the amazing history of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. Uh, he says wishing all the Jaguar community well and he hopes again to visit the UK as soon as this virus business is finally over. And to you, Peter, it's great to hear from you. Also this week, more news on a really exciting competition we have for you. We've got a pair of stunning, and I mean they are gorgeous, E-Type cufflinks produced in collaboration between world-renowned restoration and jewellery companies to give away to one of you, our podcast listeners. Now, Classic Motor Cars in Bridge North and Icarus Originals, the UK's leading provider of bespoke, unique, handmade, precision-engineered jewellery based in Shrewsbury, have come together to design and produce a stunning set of E-Type cufflinks. Now, these are not just normal cufflinks. They're made solely from the original aluminium pistons from the most sought-after E-Type, a 1961 Series 1 fixed-head coupe. And they were the idea of CMC's managing director, Nigel Woodward. The cufflinks are going to be limited edition to only 750 strictly. They come in an amazing looking mahogany box and they've got the very own certificate of authentication as well. They cost $169.99 inclusive of postage and packing. If you want to uh, skip the competition and go and buy some and they can be ordered directly from Icarus Originals Limited at IcarusOriginals.com. Now, as much as I'd like to run off with these and never be seen again because they are that nice, I have put photographs of them on the description for this episode over at jcpodcast.com. So go there and have a look at them. You'll see some really nice pictures there that really give you a sense of just how lovely these things are. And all you have to do to win these is to keep listening to the podcast. Easy, right? And soon we'll be asking you a question which you must answer correctly. And the first email we receive via the contact form at jcpodcast.com will win these. Now, to make it a little bit more tricky, that question could come at any time on this or next week's episode. All you have to do is keep listening to the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. And it could be you with these amazing E-Type cufflinks. Now, our Jaguars are on the whole not moving around an awful lot at the moment as we continue life under the restrictions brought by the COVID-19 pandemic. But how do we make sure our Jaguars are protected and preserved during this period of extended layup so that they're ready as soon as we're able to get out on the road again? Well, I spoke to Alistair Flack from JEC club partner Hamilton Classic to get his expertise after decades of developing the best quality car covers and other accessories for classic cars. 
Let's talk about cars that are sat outdoors first of all. There's a bewildering array of covers on the market for outdoor protection. What do we need to look for in order to get a really good outdoor car cover? And why are the ones that you can get through our club shop so much better? The most important feature is that it must be breathable. Everybody, and I still hear it on regular occasions, oh, you can't put a cover on a car because it micro blisters, etc., etc. Um, that's not true anymore. Many years ago when we had uh, poorer paint qualities, car covers and fabrics weren't as highly advanced as they are now. They weren't breathable. So any moisture that was condensating from the ground up under the car through the engine bay, the wheel arches, would come up under the cover and just get trapped. It couldn't escape even on a warm day. So the advent of breathable materials, um, some covers breathe through little vents, some covers breathe through the stitching of the seams. Um, we prefer to go a different route and have a breathable fabric that is a multi-construction. So by that I mean it's made up in a similar way to a Gore-Tex jacket in that it's multi-layer with perforations in each layer so that the fibres of the fabric crisscross over each breathe hole allowing the air out and the moisture out but it restricts 99% of the water going in. So you're much better off allowing a little bit of moisture into the car, but everything can escape. So the car stays drier for longer, which is more important with our ever-changing climate and more condensation. And that's good for outdoor cars and outdoor car covers, but you also do car covers for cars that are stored indoors and some of those might be in very plush heated garages or some of them might be in sort of prefab garages what do we need to look at when we're looking at indoor car covers then again the most important feature is breathability because you can still get condensation and moisture in the atmosphere in an indoor garage um, obviously not so much a heated one the first thing to do if anybody has it is to remove a tumble dryer if they have that in the garage because that generates a huge amount of moisture in the atmosphere um, but again, breathable, dustproof is obviously important because you don't want to take a cover off and put the and then end up having to clean the car because it's got a layer of dust over it. Um, and preferably avoid a woven fabric or a natural fabric. Woven fabrics are cotton, elasticated, stretchy covers because as soon as you pull the fabric and open the weave, you're opening the, the holes for all the dust to fall through. So... It, they're very good with breathability, but they're not so good with dustproofing. Um, cotton used to be a very popular fabric, but it's actually one of the worst you can put on a car because it's woven, so it lets dust through. It is breathable, but being a natural fibre, it also attracts airbound moisture. So if on a damp, clammy day, your car is damp and clammy because that natural fibre has sucked in all the airbound moisture. So uh, you need a preferably a man-made fiber that doesn't attract moisture you need a non-woven fiber so that it doesn't let the dust through but it's still breathable which i'm pleased to say is the fabric that we've developed over being in the industry for 20 plus years well don't fall for any of those problems just go straight to the club shop and get your exactly. uh, indoor cover there or your outdoor cover uh, from us and uh, that will uh, make sure that you get the best quality possible and apart from covers then alistair what else should be we be worried about uh, batteries always seem to get a bit of a battering when they're either on short journeys and not being on a full charge cycle or just general storage what can we do to look after them 
Well, the, we recommend uh, a CTEC battery conditioner, which is a fully automated voltage monitoring battery charger, basically, or battery conditioner, as the modern phrase is, um, where they monitor the voltage and turn themselves on and off automatically so that the battery conditioner charger can be left connected for long periods. Um, traditional battery chargers didn't have a, a means of switching off when the battery was charged and would basically cook it dry. So it caused more problems than leaving it for uh, short periods with no charger. But the modern technology with the CTEC range is that you can leave it connected for six months at a time. I do personally. I've got a couple of classics under covers, funnily enough. And the, the con battery conditioner charger is connected permanently. The other thing to look at, you because um, tyres overinflate your tyres if you're not driving it or through the club shop is a range of tyre trainers which supports the sidewall of the tyre through a curved shape of the tyre to stop the sidewall bulging. And the trainer is designed to stop this so that it's fully supporting the tyre. Condensation in a vehicle, if you don't have a cover, there's a range of um, drying crystals that can just be sat on a dashboard so you can absorb the excess moisture in the vehicle and then you just put them on a radiator, dry them out, put them in a microwave, put them back in the car, and it just helps keep the interior up from that musty sort of smell that you used to get years ago. Yes, you get some of that mildew forming on the inside of soft top right. roofs as well, don't you? That's right. Alistair, brilliant tips there for keeping our cars protected and in the best of health until we're allowed back out on the road again. Of course, as Alistair says, all of these products are available on the club shop at the moment. And of course, you're around to just give us advice as well, aren't you? Of course, if anybody uh, wants any advice, they can have a look at our website or give us a call. And uh, I'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but I've been in the motor trade for the best part of 35 plus years um, and in the classic industry for over 20. Well, many thanks, Alistair. And that website, www.hamiltonclassic.co.uk. Memories of motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Richard West continues his fascinating series, looking back over his most treasured motorsport memories. This week, he looks back over his time in Formula One, and in particular, working with Sir Frank Williams. The first time I worked with Frank, this was prior to his, his, his road accident. The team was still just in the process of moving from the old carpet factory in the middle of Didcot to the facility that was in the shadows of the soon-to-be-completely-demolished Didcot power station. And I always remember going for my interview there with him and Sheridan Finn, who was related to um, the Marquis of Bath, who sadly you know, has been lost in the COVID-19 uh, epidemic um, in March of this year. And I just came away thinking, wow, you know, and I, I literally, I sat at home for six weeks and I never, I never heard a thing whether I was going to get the job or not. And I didn't chase and I didn't pick up the phone. I was so tempted every day to ring and say, you know, have you got any news for me? And when finally Sheridan then called me in, I went into Frank's office, you know, and Frank, so fiercely British, it's unbelievable. And I always remember this lovely green and gold tea service, you know, coffee service. And Frank said, well, we've decided to um, offer you the position. And I said, why? And he said, because you haven't picked up the phone and bothered us like all the other applicants. And I thought, well, you know, a little bit of patience has paid off. Working for Frank was amazing. Both uh, I was only there a short period in 84 before I went to McLaren. And obviously we saw a lot of each other in the paddock and in the pit lane. But 
in late August 92, September rather, 92, Mansell had made a demand on television when he won, I think it was the Monza Grand Prix, that he wanted to be on the same pay schedule as Senna, uh, which at the time I think was a million, a million a race. I can't remember if it was dollars or pounds, but it was a lot of money. And Frank just wouldn't pay it. He said, no, absolutely not. And Nigel made this very famous, you know, I'm retiring from Formula One. And off he went to race in America for Newman Haas, uh, you know, in the IndyCar sponsored, uh, in the Texaco sponsored IndyCar team. And Frank's, you know, desire at that point was to completely overhaul the commercial department. And I was made director of sponsorship and marketing services in November 92. And... Frank can be incredibly warm and incredibly encouraging, but he's also, you know, can be quite tough. And I went to Japan to do a deal with Sanyo, which had been brokered for an agent in Formula One. And there was a set sum of money and we achieved more than that set sum of money. And it took me a few, you know, weeks out there to sort it out. When I came back, he said, oh, you've been gone a long time. I said, yeah, yeah, but the good news is, you know, I brought back this extra amount of money. And he looked at me and he said, good, what else are you working on this week? And I said, I don't think you heard me. He said, I heard you perfectly. What else are you working on this week? And the one thing about Frank was that he, he always instilled in me and others around him in that period. You could not have the engineering superiority unless you had the budget. Because once you started to lose your position, you would therefore lose your income. And there's a famous quote of his in, um, in a book that I've co-authored, Performance at the Limit, Business Lessons from Formula One Motor Racing where, you know, Frank was asked for money on a particular occasion. And before handing the budget over, he actually said, can you explain to me before I spend this money how it will make the car go faster? And his razor-like focus on the business never, ever ceased. I mean, he was a joy at times to work with. He could be quite challenging. Um, there were certain things that, you know, you, you, you had to be careful in terms of the way that you phrased questions and sometimes you had to spend quite a lot of time convincing him of the argument but again the thing that made that business so successful and I talked in one of our previous um, chats about the John Barnard and Ron Dennis relationship at McLaren being so special and Nicky Lauder and Toto Wolf Frank and Patrick Head Sir Pat, both sirs now Sir Frank Williams and Sir Patrick Head their partnership was is still a great friendship but in their heyday at the top of the game their partnership was exactly what drove the team and there was no secrets between them they shared every single piece of information and again you know it was a joy you you just knew that you were driven hard same with ron same with tom same with kenta or all these successful guys eddie jordan they drive their people hard but at the end of the day the immense satisfaction that you get out of it and I remember Frank saying to me one day you know he just winked at me and said cracking job mate well done and that's all it takes motivation is not a difficult thing and if you if you thank the people that make you and make your team and your business successful they carry you through and I always remember that with Frank he was always very gracious he would spare time with you he would listen but you had to have a good argument because if you didn't have a good argument you didn't get the funding or you didn't get the agreement but a real privilege again working with him on those two occasions in my career that I did You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast Sharing the passion Sharing the knowledge All your questions answered with the Jaguar Model Experts
More of your technical questions answered now on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. And once again, we're joined by Tom Robinson from Swallows Independent Jaguar. Hiya, Tom. Hi, Wayne. How are you? Good, mate. Good. We've got a mixed bag of questions into the podcast this week. And I'm going to start off with one on E10 Fuels. Uh, This comes from Oliver Turner, who says, I listened to the podcast, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Good stuff. Pleased to hear it, Oliver. Uh, But he says, the section on E10 caught my ear. How does one know which models will be possibly affected by this? And he needs to know whether he needs to buy uprated fuel hoses and seals for his 1993 Jaguar XJS 4-litre soft top to cope with the effects of E10 ethanol fuel. Now, very easy way of checking this. Um, ESEA, they're the European Automobile Manufacturers Association, and there are a couple of other sources as well, trusted sources on this on the internet. They have a list of all of the cars that are used regularly in Europe that are cleared for use with E10 fuel. And of Jaguar, they specifically say that E10 petrol is cleared for all Jaguars from 1992 onwards so oliver your 1993 facelifted jaguar xjs will be absolutely fine on e10 fuel second question we had in was regarding mark ii bumpers from graham molino who says hi i'm looking to replace my slim mark ii 240 bumpers with the earlier wider ones is this just a straight swap with regards to the mounting of them or do i have to make any modifications to the mounting points i consulted on behalf of Tom, the guru on all things, David Marks, of course, and he says it is a big job, this is, Graham, and it's not really worth the effort. Amongst other things, David says, all the mounting arrangements and brackets are very different at the front and rear valance, and the quarter bodywork needs changing from the earlier panel work. So David Marks' advice is not to proceed with this as one could end up opening up a real can of worms as well. Basically, Graham, it could turn into a full restoration. You've got to be careful. So um, think twice about that particular conversion. One for you then, Tom, here, as we continue answering your questions on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Uh, This one came through from Dave Stone on the JC Facebook page. And Dave says, uh, just after a bit of advice here, really, he's got a 1998 Daimler 4 litre V8 long wheelbase. Uh, it's a beautiful car, he says. I love it. It's the best car he's ever owned. Of course, it's a Jaguar. Uh, but recently, my baby seems to have developed a strange noise. It's accelerating fine, maintaining a constant speed, again fine. However, when I take my foot off the accelerator pedal or cancel the cruise control, there's a slight droning sound coming from the back. He's thinking diff bearings or wheel bearings, something like that. Tom, what do you reckon? So it's great that you've given us some sort of proper info on exactly what it's doing when you're driving it. So normally we would run the vehicle up on the ramp and actually listen to the key areas of the drivetrain with a stethoscope to confirm where it's coming from. Now, as you've indicated, it only seems to happen on deceleration at any or all speeds. It's most likely to unfortunately be the diff itself. It's usually actually the pinion bearing with what you've described um, as the wheel bearings are normally consistent under loaned or cornering, etc. That's a big job, isn't it, Tom? It is, yeah. Unfortunately, it is removal of the rear axle um, to get the diff assembly apart. Um, once the diff's out, then you can obviously look at getting that reconditioned. I'd, I'd sort of recommend to stay away from a used item as there's obviously no real way of testing it until it's driven in the car. And probably given the weight of the unit and the complexity of the job, probably not a job unless you're really, really capable that you really want to be trying at home. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot easier, obviously, on a ramp, etc., because you can remove the rear assembly, and it does come out complete with shocks, dampers, um, half shafts and hubs all in one unit, so it's, it's a fairly labour-intensive job. X350 now. Paul Hutchins has been in touch to say he's experiencing condensation in the offside headlights of his 2004 X350, and uh, the near-side lights are fine, he thinks the problem might be the seals between the lens and the glass, but what are your suggestions, Tom? Well, I must admit, it's pretty rare to see condensation in the headlamps of an X350. It's pretty common in some of the XJSs and XK models, but I would say it's, it is likely to be failure of the actual headlamp itself. Um, but um, unfortunately, it is going to require removal to actually inspect to see if it is the seal, whether it can be repaired or whether you'll need a replacement unit. Now, it is fairly straightforward um, to, to actually get the lights, but you do need to remove the front bumper to gain access. Um, so that will have to come right the way off to get both of the headlights. Now, just another point that's worth mentioning, if you do um, go ahead to remove the front bumper, I'd definitely recommend um, to clean and check the earth points that are behind the headlights as these often corrode. So it'd be a good sort of job off the list to get that done whilst the bumper's off and they can break on removal. So we recommend to replace these with new fixings. Alan Smith next with an S-Type R. He's simply asking, how do I reset the seat program in a 2007 S-Type? So uh, no problem, Alan. This is pretty straightforward. If you set the seat to your, your desired position, then simply push the memory button, and then you can just hold one of the numbers, and this will store um, the exact seating position you've got. So you cannot clear all previous, but you can override the previous settings just by pushing the memory button, then pushing one of the numbers, and just holding it down for a couple of seconds until you hear a chime, and that will set it to that position. There should also be a full description of this in your handbook that will break it down a little, hopefully a little bit clearer. Hopefully that's sorted out and he hasn't got to uh, sit in his S-type with his knees underneath his chin anymore or anything like that. So that would sorted that out. Don't forget, you can get your technical questions answered here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast very simply. Just go to the website at jecpodcast.com and click the contact button there. And preferably you use the voice recorder, but uh, all of the questions we've heard on this episode have been sent in using the contact form. Either or is fine. Most important thing is that we hear from you and get your technical questions answered by our team of model experts on our JEC panel. Tom, excellent stuff and I shall let you get off to your V-Day celebrations or whatever you're doing. Yeah, thanks Wayne. Yeah, we're actually going to spend a little bit of time on uh, on my own race car with a few hours definitely. Brilliant. Excellent time to get all the preparations done for when finally we're allowed out again. Yeah, can't wait. Can't wait. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk. Our star guest on this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast is a household name to tens of millions of motorsport fans around the world as Sky TV's lead presenter in Formula One racing. It is, of course, Martin Brundle. He's consistently questioning drivers, team owners and the sports personalities just minutes before the start of each race with his trademark grid walk and he brings a unique insight into the sport for all of us watching at home. 
This led the Times newspaper to once describe him as the greatest TV analyst in this or any other sport. Having started his Formula One driving career with Tyrrell in 1984, he's also driven for Zack Speed, Williams, Brabham, Benetton, Ligier, McLaren and Jordan in F1. And of special interest to us Jaguar fans, he was the lead driver in victories of the 1988 Daytona and 1990 Le Mans 24-hour races with TWR. He's been associated with Jaguar since 1983, when he raced alongside Tom Walkinshaw in the awesome XJSs in the European Touring Car Championship. In 1988, he was crowned World Sports Prototype Drivers' Champion in a TWR Jaguar with a record points tally, and he's driven alongside none other than Sterling Moss when he raced for Audi in touring cars. He also raced with Michael Schumacher whilst at Benetton and Mika Hakkinen at McLaren. Now, Richard West was teammates with Martin Brundle at TWR in 1990. And so, in this unique conversation between two motorsport colleagues, Richard and Martin chat very personally about the pivotal moments that made Martin Brundle one of the most experienced and accomplished drivers of his era. Martin, good morning. Uh, good morning, Richard. How are you doing? Did they still call you promo? <laughs> They do indeed. Um, That was Tom, wasn't it, who decided his promotions man ought to have a nickname within days of starting at the company. Yes, they do. Very importantly, how are you and how's your lovely wife Liz and family? Are you all keeping well? Uh, We're absolutely fine, thank you. Yeah, holed up in sunny Norfolk, um, five miles from where I was born, where I still live. Mm. And, uh, you know, I know it's been a lot of misery for a lot of people, this Mm. whole uh, pandemic and... But I guess if, you, if you're going to have to be stuck somewhere, then West Norfolk's not a bad place. No, and as a Suffolk man these days, I can't uh, can't agree with you more. East Anglia is a lovely place to be. Um, as you say, with the recent lockdown and commitments to Sky TV coverage, I know you've still been incredibly busy with online uh, interviews and articles. Uh, but I'd like to come back to F1 just for the remainder of this year, uh, towards the end of our chat, if I may. Let's, let's really focus in on Jaguar, because obviously here, this is a new uh, extension of communication for our members. The JEC podcast is there in these times to try and give some insight sites and whilst you're very well known I'd like to go right back into those annals of time really you did describe to me once when we were sitting down with Tony Dow how and where you first met Tom and how you drove for him in the county BMW championship can you just remind us of those days yeah I was a young guy in British touring cars racing a Toyota Celica from our Toyota dealership and there was a thing called the BMW county championship which was uh, BMW dealers from around the UK were funding a car and then with invited tip-top drivers uh, along the lines of Alan Jones and Hans Stuck, Nigel Mansell, and, and so many more. So I wrote to Tom out of the blue and said, uh, Dear Mr. Walkinshaw, you know, I think I'm going to be a top touring car racer. Will you please give me a chance in the Norfolk car at the Norfolk ground? And he did um, with, uh, with my local BMW dealer, Sorensen, it was called at the time. And I had a ding-dong battle with... Uh, Andy Rouse, the, the multiple uh, touring car champion, and Frank Sittner, and it went down really well. Then I went to Donington and stuck it on pole against a lot of famous racers. I think it was the, the Gunnar, Gunnar Nielsen Memorial event there, and won the race, just disappeared into the distance. And so from writing a letter, which sadly I don't have a copy of, to being on the international scene um, happened as as easily as that really I just I just got lucky I just got smart in, in writing to Tom and 
Tom gave me uh, that opportunity. And then I raced for him then, uh, more on than off, until 1997, um, mm. from what was then 79. Um, so for a long period of time, 18 years. Yeah, I'll talk about it later, but I've often described when I'm doing the odd chat around the club and the regions, you know, the special relationship you had with Tom, but I will come back to that later. In 82 and 83, I remember, you were also racing successfully in Formula 3 and your your sort of battles with um, Ayrton Senna were absolutely titanic at the time. And of course, with Ayrton and indeed Roland's anniversaries just having passed over the over the weekend, um, it made me think back to those days. And I've still got a picture of you somewhere in my files. I was desperately trying to find it earlier. Of you and Senna with each other sort of grabbed by each other's throats looking very severe. What on earth was that all about? Well, it was a funny season. Uh, I, I then went um, with Tom to the Audi team with Sterling Moss is my teammate, believe it or not. Another man we just lost, sadly. Um, mm. And uh, the, the, with BP sponsorship, they took me into Formula 3. Uh, and I wasn't really that experienced in single-seater, so I struggled a bit. I was more of a tin-top man. But I, I went really well towards the end of the year and became Commonwealth Driver of the Year, Grovewood Award or something. Got five mm. grand for that. But I actually got dropped because they thought I wasn't going to be strong enough to fight with Senna they thought somebody else who he'd raced against in former 2000 would be the would be the guy so I ended up with Eddie Jordan racing and we had an epic season that's been the subject of a documentary and still a lot of pub talk and sort of growing in stature if anything mm, mm. all these years later and Ayrton won the first nine races and I, I, I kind of hit rock bottom and then I won a race at Silverstone and he crashed trying to keep up with me and it, and it just transformed the year when uh, I two things happened. I knew I could beat him on the same day in the same car, and he knew I could beat him. And I just grew in strength and started winning a lot of races, and he crashed more and more and crashed on top of me once. We ended up in the steward's offices uh, a couple of times. He kept uh, getting his, his license endorsed for dangerous driving. He, he took that quite badly, thought the system was against him. In fact, I saw some traits from Ayrton in F3 that I would see through his F1 career as well. He was convinced that the establishment was against him, uh, as he was the FIA when he got to F1. Um, and he would place his car in a position that left you to decide if you're going to have an accident or not. He, he was quite aggressive and he, he psychologically wanted that advantage. So when I showed that I wasn't prepared to move out of the way, it, it reset the game somewhat with between us and we went into the last round of the series. Uh, I was in fact one point ahead. Um, so we, yeah, it was, a, it was an epic season. Um, it was a bit scary at Alton Park. He actually landed, his, uh, the side part of his car was on my shoulder and he was revving the engine. I don't know where he thought he was going at the time. But, um, and I could hear the, yeah. the gearbox clattering away in my right ear and the engine revving was a bit scary. But uh, we were fine. Uh, we, we were just two young guys trying to do the same thing at the same time. He, he was always going to F1. And it elevated me along with him straight into F1. Yeah, I mean, I sadly miss him like so many people around the world. As you know, I interviewed him that fateful morning in Imola just before, you know, the race took place. And I'm still look back on that occasionally and I just see the intensity. But when I look at that picture of the two of you holding each other's throats, if I can put it politely, the intensity in both of your eyes, you know, separates what makes a racing driver from a normal driver. But thank you for that. But 
Moving on into 83, we saw you driving for TWR yet again. This time you were out in the fearsome XJSs. Um, we talked to Wynn Percy recently, and he said in an interview that you had to get on top of the XJS when driving it. Um, what are your recollections of the car and also driving with Tom as your teammate? Well, I really loved it, to be honest. I think my first race for Jaguar was Donington in treacherous conditions. So John Egan was there to hand out the winner's prize. And incredibly... And my XJS won the race. I remember going down through Craney Curves, literally floating with the engine stalled because we were off the ground, the tyres were off the ground, and somehow came through that. And that was the start of my Jaguar career, and it was, couldn't have been more timely, really. Uh, and obviously, Tom put me in the car. Uh, and then I did more. In fact, I won a race with Tom in Austria. It was a bit of a scary one because... Um, the BMWs were out there. I think it was Manfred Winkelhock, um, sadly, we another man we lost mm. in sports car racing in uh, 85. Um, but, uh, yeah, I remember every time I went to pass him, he was trying to run me on the grass. It was very, very aggressive between Jaguar and BMW back in the days. Could regale you for quite a long time about some of the shenanigans that went on there. Um, but Tom was a feisty driver. I mean, he was, a, he was an aggressive driver fast um but there came a point when he went group c racing he decided that that was as far as he was going to go yeah, and, but you know he, he was no slouch and if you look through his junior career uh, you know he was strong and he, you see him in those cologne capris and and other cars i mean he was he was a good driver and uh, and that paid dividends later on because he had a driver's mentality that's why i love driving for tom because when he was on the pit wall i knew i had somebody who understood what it was like behind the wheel and who could read a race and who had the confidence to, to make the big calls. And, and that, that's, I think that's why we got on so well. He trusted me implicitly. And, you know, I very, very rarely damaged his cars. I gave him which, which way was up. And, um, and so we just had a, a great, a great, he was probably the, the father to me that I lost, uh, quite, quite early on in some respects. So, mm. um, it, we, we, we had a we had a tremendous relationship. I don't think we ever we had one one argument. I think in Daytona once, but that was about it. Um, but the XJS, to answer your question fully, was not a natural racing car, but a good racing car. And I found it. it I mean, it floated around a lot. It was it was one of those cars I would describe as you ignored eighty percent of what it did when it was moving and shuffling <laughs> yeah. and yeah. generally showing a bit of a disinterest in slowing down and, and turning into a corner. Um, but the other 20% you learn to get on top of right now and sort it out. And we had some tremendous races. Wind was really quick in them, but Enna Pagusa was another one. <laughs> a really bizarre race. Um, but we, we, we won a lot. We won a lot of races in that car. And, you know, Tom was, we know how... Uh, Tom would push the rules, push the regulations, and have you know have just just make sure he got the fastest car out of there. It was it was really competitive racing back in those days, and mm. up against great drivers like Gerhard Berger and Dieter Quester and. Uh, and, and all of those guys. Yeah, I mean, in just on looking back on some of the, the records I've got and TWR files, I just came across some pictures in there. I just can't imagine what it would be like taking a Rouge in the next day S flat out. Uh, quite an exciting moment, I would imagine, isn't it? Yeah, I'd, I'd be very surprised if we took it flat out because they've got a fair old donkey in the front. They've got plenty of power <laughs> and plenty of yeah. torque. 
Um, and yeah, and I would then move on to have that engine uh, or uh, a sort of a similar version to it behind me in the Group mm. C car. So it was mm. it was an incredible engine, lots of torque. You could leave the pits in top gear if you wanted to and, and edge away, but the centre of gravity of it wasn't ideal, shall we say. So mm. it was um, all the attributes of a wonderful V12, and then you had to manage the downside, which was the the size of it and the height of it, basically. Um, but no, I, the, I, I did the, uh, I think we were leaving at Spa in the 24 hours and then something happened, the car broke down. I remember I got cement dust in my eyes, was, tears streaming out as I'm walking back to the pits just from the cement dust that they put down through the night with these massive vents pointing at the driver. They just channeled all the dust towards us. Um, and, and the car was fearsomely hot inside. So I think 19 hours into the race, we broke down, which I was pretty disappointing. But uh, I've got very fond memories of that car. I drove one up the hill at Goodwood uh, a couple of years back. They were an amazing car. And in fact, within the club, they do they do garner amazing interest from people. Every time, you know, one's on display, you always get a whole bunch of people who want pictures taken with them. Um, interestingly, going back to 1984, that was when I started as a very junior sponsorship coordinator at Williams, and you probably won't remember, but we flew out to Rio to the first race of the year with you driving for Tyrrell, and I remember sitting with Russell Bolgen, the six foot seven journalist who sadly passed away, you know, a few years after that with cancer. But Russell pointed you out to me and said, oh, that's Martin. I said, oh, Martin Brundle. And we sat probably for about half an hour discussing, you know, that infamous incident that you referred to earlier with Ayrton. But it was the start of your Formula One career. Um, You raced until the end of 87 in F1. But then you took this really, I remember at the time reading about it and talking to some people. And I think you and I actually shared some words on it. You took the decision to step back from F1 and once again sort of reset your career almost and drive for Tom at TWR again. What really prompted that? What was the attraction of going to TWR Jaguar at that time? And, of course, what was going to turn out to be a fabulous 88 season? Well, it was Tom mostly because he said, look, you're spinning your wheels in F1. What's the point of being in? My Tyrrell was struggling. Then I went to Zach Speed just, mm. just to stay in F1. And it suited Tom because he needed somebody to lead the charge with his uh, with his you know Group C cars and IMSA cars. And, um, and he was right. So I stepped back. It, it hurt at the time, you know, having, I mean, I was a hobby racer until I got up against Senna, basically. Um, but then I got to F1 and I didn't want to leave it. I'd smashed myself up meanwhile as well, um, which mm. didn't help. But uh, And Tom was right, you know, come away, refresh. I'd do, I'd do it again as well two years later. Refresh your credibility and um, come and lead the charge, uh, you know, with the, with the Group C car and the new IMSA team. So that's exactly what I did. And the next thing is we're having a a press conference at the RAC Club Pall Mall. Eddie Cheever was there. Then we went to Heathrow Airport, got on Concorde. And then we had a private jet from wherever we landed. It would have been Newark, wouldn't it? Yeah, New York. York. Yeah. And down to Talladega, Alabama, where mm. we tested the car out there with uh, Tony Dow and the new gang over in TWR IMSA, which is a wonderful experience. I love that. I love building, building that up with them. And, you know, and uh, it, it had only been running a, the whole program of it, just running a few weeks. And so they did an extraordinary job to create mm. a team because Daytona was beckoning. Yeah. And I, just, I, don't know, I remember sitting, it, it was just bizarre sort of, 
yeah, RAC Club Pall Mall Concord Private Jet, Talladega, Alabama, with its banking. I think it might be 39 degrees there, the banking and mm. um, yes. and the infield and sort of uh, a strange place to be testing uh, a Daytona car, but it, it worked. It worked a treat. Um, and uh, that was it, the beginning of a, of a new uh, chapter in my life. I think, yeah, and, and I think um, several things there. I mean, firstly, you mentioned Tony Dow and the boys in Valparaiso, where the TWR headquarters was. I, you know, Tony did an amazing job with those guys. I remember, you know, going over to see him when I joined Tom in early 89, having left McLaren. And when I first met Tony, he said, you know, we built this place, and I think it was 11 weeks, and there with chassis 288, I think it was, you went off to Daytona. And, of course, in 88, you won the Daytona 24-hour race, um, much to the joy of Jaguar America and Jaguar Worldwide. But that season was also meteoric for you, wasn't it? Because you became... They, they changed the title, didn't they, the championship a number of times, and you actually won the World Sports Prototype Driver's Crown with a record points tally. What was it, 240 points that year, I think you scored? Uh, I can't remember if I'm honest. Yeah. Uh, it was a yeah. big fight with Mercedes yes. against Mercedes, and um, uh, it was yeah. And, and sports car racing was so strong, mm. and it's always ebbed and flowed. I'm afraid as the manufacturers turn up, overspend, trying to win, pull out, and it, it's been a real. It's always been a roller coaster. But that was a high point with so many manufacturers involved. Really exciting mm. times. Uh, and yes, mm. I was lucky enough to be part of the you know sort of to win. In fact, I, I won it individually because one of the races my teammate Eddie Cheever couldn't make so mm. uh, in yeah in uh, Fuji I became the, the world champion we then spent uh, five and a half hours in traffic trying to get back to Tokyo airport and never made it missed the plane and never had the chance to party either so that was a great disappointment actually but it was an incredible year I think I, I was also test driver at Williams for the active car uh, Nigel Mansell got fed up with the active Williams dumping him on the floor at high speed uh, when the suspension lost interest. So he said, put a monkey in it, and I was the monkey they put in it. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I, I then, so. I then um, raced for Williams, actually, in Spa. So that was time, I was yeah. doing, yeah, World Sports Car Championship, Williams tester, Williams racer, and the and the very exciting IMSA program. Yeah, I tell you the thing about '88, and I, I, I suppose partly you're to blame for this. Actually, of course, I was at McLaren at the time, and we were winning every single race. And Ronald set us this wonderful challenge of winning all 16. And I remember you did the Belgian Grand Prix because Nigel was out with chickenpox, I think. Um, you were due then to go and do another race, which I think was Monza, and they put Slesser in the car, who took uh, Ayrton off at the chicane. And consequently, we only won 15 out of 16 races at McLaren that year. So you, you were compliant in that defeat, I think, at some stage. But there we are. Well, like, you need to blame Tom for that, because uh, my spa run went a bit too well. I think I finished seventh in the end or something, and I was quickest right. in the rain of everybody. Tom didn't want me to do Monza. So that's when they put Schlesser in it. Uh, uh, actually, that was a that was a mistake on my part. I should have ignored Tom on that and and done the Monza race and mm. and kept in and did more testing for Williams and all of that. Although I went I went back to Brabham the following year, uh, mm. back into F1. But eventually, down the road, when the opportunity came to be in a Williams, it 
well, it, it kind of happened and then it suddenly didn't. So I probably, yeah, it, it cost it cost me and McLaren dearly that I didn't go to Monza. Mm, absolutely, it certainly did. I'm never forgiving you for that, but there we are. <laughs> um, you mentioned you went back to uh, to Formula One with Brabham. You went back um, in 89, but it wasn't exactly the best of years, was it really? I don't think, I can't imagine you particularly enjoyed that year. Oh, uh, well, do you know, it was all right. We had the, the Brabham Judd with... Pirelli tyres. I mean, I was on for a hell of a result in Monaco, for example. Um, mm. We were pre-qualifying, but we were usually top of pre-qualifying. Um, and we, we had some we had some good races that year. Uh, but the, the team was running out of money, mm. um, and I just decided to to get out of there at, at the end of that year. But actually, I think that little it's a very crisp looking car. It was been it was the '91 season at Brabham that was hard work with the, mm. the Yamaha V12. The Yamaha people were great. I love working with them, but a, a V12 F1 engine back then was just too heavy and too thirsty. But um, yeah. I, I enjoyed my years at Brabham, but it, it was it was just as Bernie was leaving and um, the guy who I signed up with ended up in prison. I had two team bosses end up in prison, actually, and mm. in relatively short order. <laughs> and, and, but that's actually the way F1 is, and who it, well, particularly who it used to attract. But uh, it, it was it was a bit it was a bit challenging, and Brabham were literally were running out of money and all sorts of trouble. So yeah, I, I performed the go back to Jaguar trick again. Join us next week when Richard and Martin continue their conversation by recalling TWR Jaguar's victory at Le Mans in 1990. And I asked Martin Brundle about the very special moment he had racing at Le Mans with his son Alex. Plus, we get Martin Brundle's thoughts on the future of Formula One. We'll be giving you the opportunity to win those amazing E-Type cufflinks. Just listen for the question, courtesy of CMC Classic Motorcars in Bridge North. And don't forget to keep in touch and send us your technical questions via jcpodcast.com. Use the voice recorder on there preferably or of course you can use the contact form there as well you can also join the jaguar enthusiast club really easily online at jcpodcast.com just by clicking the join us button to ensure you get the latest copy of jaguar enthusiast magazine and access to literally hundreds of pounds worth of member discounts and benefits until next week See ya. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.